Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we assess China's innovation strategy. Over the last 15 years, in an unprecedented innovation drive, the Chinese government has pumped trillions of dollars and vast resources into high-tech industry sectors to benefit Chinese firms. These efforts have included government subsidies, investments, human capital, and protectionist market barriers to keep competition out. As a result of these efforts, and a large pool of cheap labor, amongst other factors, China has maintained its edge as the manufacturing capital of the world. But leaders are continuing to push Chinese companies to develop, not just assemble, their own technology products. In Western economic experience, the idea of creating Silicon Valley 2.0 and an entrepreneurial ecosystem that leads to innovation has tended to require the government to take a step back. Yet the Chinese Communist Party leadership has done the opposite, intervening in markets and industrial policy with high frequency and lots of renminbi. Is China's leadership getting the expected bang for their buck? Can China defy the usual norms of innovation gravity? How will this affect the overall Chinese macroeconomic picture? To answer these questions, my CSIS colleague, Dr. Scott Kennedy of our Freeman Chair in Chinese Studies, sat down with Arthur Krober, the Managing Director of Gave Call Dragonomics, an economic research firm, and a non-resident senior fellow of the Brookings Tsinghua Center. We wanted Arthur to give us a sense of how China's innovation strategy is working. Here's Scott Kennedy with their conversation. Hi, my name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm uh, here with Arthur Krober. Well, Arthur, thanks for being with us. Why don't we just start with the widest lens we could? You've been working on China for a long time. You've lived there for a long time, traveled around, just published an important book on the Chinese economy, uh, What Everyone Needs to Know. From the, the grand sweep of, of your time following China, do you see the story of innovation and technology as a glass half full story or as a glass half empty story? Uh, I'd see it as a, a glass slowly filling up story, but uh, it's a little bit hard to see what the level is. Um, so uh, my perspective is, is very similar to the one uh, I think that was articulated in, in your excellent report, um, that clearly we've seen uh, big improvements in technological capacity in China across a, a wide range of sectors uh, over the last uh, 15 to 20 years. Um, We've seen, um, uh, you know, a particularly encouraging development is that there's a handful of sectors, notably the internet, which basically don't have state-owned enterprise incumbents, um, uh, dominated by private sector firms, and and the rate of, of uh, entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation there, I think, is quite strong. So I think they're clearly uh, on on most metrics you're seeing you're seeing improvement. At the same time, I think um, you've seen large-scale industrial policies. Uh, in things like um, automotive, uh, semiconductors, a whole range of sectors where the government has poured huge amounts of money directly or indirectly in the hopes of creating sort of national or global champions in a variety of technology-intensive industries. And a lot of these industrial policies have really not borne much fruit. Um, So it's it's a mixed bag with, I think, a generally improving trajectory. So put yourself in in Xi Jinping's shoes as, as large as they are. And try to explain to uh, listeners, given all the waste, inefficiencies, mistakes, why would a Chinese official who needs to have a good economy to continue to generate legitimacy be willing to throw so much money away 
if it, it doesn't seem like it makes economic sense, what's the economic or political logic that the Chinese leadership uses to explain this uh, approach? Um, and you know, to what extent are they, you know, maybe right? Well, I think the starting point uh, for me is that efficiency is never a terribly important con- uh, uh, concept in China. Uh, so if you just want to take this at the grandest level, uh, the Chinese elite going back to the mid-19th century uh, has been obsessed with the project of um, getting China's technological up uh, level up on a par with the West. They went through a national trauma in the 19th century where after many, many centuries of, of considering themselves kind of the, uh, the leading uh, technological, economic, political power in the world, uh, they suffered a, a real fall in that position because Western countries had outstripped them. And so I think very deeply embedded in the psychology of the Chinese elite is this desire to, just to catch up and restore China's overall position. And so if that's the project, you're not so much concerned about uh, marginal efficiency of a given project. You just want to ach- achieve that end. And you're willing to, as it were, spare no cost to achieve that end. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's the starting point. And then if we make it more concrete, um, you know, we can see over the last 30 years that uh, successive waves of Chinese leadership have identified particular technological sectors as core or strategic, important for national development. And so again, the idea there is that you just need to build those industries. And if you have to waste a lot of money along the way to building those industries so that they are strong and so that China can be self-sufficient in a lot of these supposedly core or strategic technologies, then that's a, that's a price worth paying. So I, I think that's the, the general psychology that's at work. And what I would add to that is, uh, you know, I think there's a tendency in the outside to say, well, okay, you can have that psychology, but surely it's unsustainable if you're incurring all these losses. And I think the response to that is, perhaps on a, on a long time frame it is, but if you're China and you have a national savings rate of 40%, you have a financial system that's essentially controlled by the government, you can sustain that process for a very, very long time before you run up against a hard constraint. And I, I think we're still some ways away from, from seeing a hard constraint on the ability of Chinese government to finance these kinds of projects. That's a great point. I think the only way that the problem would make it so it wouldn't work out is if folks took their money out of the banks, put it under pillows, or they sent it out and put it under pillows in foreign countries, which they have a hard time doing, right? So that's a, a good point, although we ought not to always say, bet for sure that everything is going to be uh, stable forever. You never know in, until it, it isn't. Let me change directions and actually look at things from the other end of the microscope from Chinese companies. This is something I asked when I was in China with people, you know, what's your favorite Chinese company? Uh, why is it your favorite? Is it because of the technology, because of the products, because of the service, uh, the chocolate on the pillow? Are you surprised that this company has been around for a while or that they're brand new? Uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be pretty boring here. My favorite would be a, a coin flip between the, the two top internet giants, Alibaba and Tencent. Um, and you know that's not a very creative choice, but I think the reality is that these are companies that have operated very creatively in a very dynamic environment. Uh, they have benefited, no question, from certain kinds of government support, but uh, for the most part, I think they have earned their success, and they have proved themselves uh, able to reinvent themselves uh, as the as the needs of the markets 
shift. Um, and it's actually a pretty interesting competition uh, between the two. They, they seem to uh, uh, be involved in a, a pretty continuous effort to, to out, outdo each other. Um, so it's, it's not very uh, imaginative, but I, I think those clearly are the, the class of, the, of, Chinese, uh, of corporate China today. I think a lot of people would agree with you. Um, let me, again, now look at not the technology trajectory in China, but how um, the U.S. and others are thinking about it in the type of policies. As you know, in Washington, uh, there's great concern. Uh, alarm bells have been sounded. But the Trump administration is still putting together its China policy, as are other countries around the world. What kind of advice might you give them and others who are thinking about whether we ought to take steps that might lead to a trade war or case-by-case or, um, case, um, or give China more time and, and be more patient? Um, you know, what are, what are, especially on this particular issue, um, is it important enough that, you know, basically, you know, you go to the, go to the wall with the Chinese because of this? Uh, well, we could probably spend three or four hours discussing all of that, but um, a couple of thoughts. First of all, um, I, I think just at the conceptual level, if the concern is that China is gaining advantage in global markets in part by, quote, unquote, not playing by the rules, um, I think it's very important to double down on your uh, visible and practical commitment to that rules-based order and say, we are for fair rules of the road that are equal for everyone, uh, and we're going to commit ourselves um, not only to running our own uh, economy that way, but we're also going to put a lot of resources into the international agreements and institutions that are necessary for those rules. Otherwise, you're kind of in a law of the jungle uh, type of situation. Uh, so that's point one. Point two, I guess, would be related to that. Um, to the extent that there are very uh, closely shared interests between the U.S., uh, many Western European economies, such as Germany, France, and Italy, um, and Japan, um, you need to be multilateral in your approaches. Uh, and I think the notion that uh, anyone can be in an advantageous position in bilateral negotiations against China, I think that's really misguided because China is big. Uh, it's very determined. They have a clear strategy. And as I mentioned, they have the ability to finance all kinds of you know, problematic practices for a very long period of time. And the, and the only way that you can constrain that effectively, I think, is through some kind of uh, uh, coordinated multilateral um, action. Um, and then I think finally and, and more concretely, I would say when it comes to matters of uh, you know, trade and investment, I, I think it is worth taking a very close look at uh, national security uh, uh, provisions uh, under uh, CFIUS, for example, and, and looking at whether those definitions of what constitutes national security need to be modified or expanded. I think that's a legitimate uh, exercise. Uh, clearly, the first and foremost responsibility of any American administration is to safeguard national security. So I think a review of just where the boundaries uh, of that lie is, is certainly in order, uh, particularly uh, given the lack of transparency in the Chinese system, the lack of clarity as to whether Chinese companies are acting out of commercial interests or out of strategic government-driven interests. So I think a review of that is, uh, is, is warranted. Uh, I would be very reluctant, however, to go down a wider road of um, investment or trade protectionism or reciprocity tests that go beyond the national security 
uh, realm? Because again, I think that ties back to the, the, the question of are you or are you not committed to this concept of a, sort of a rules-based international trade and investment order? I think that order has served us very well, and we should stick to that you know, to the maximum uh, amount possible. Arthur, as always, we've learned a lot. We appreciate the time that you've spent with us at CSAS today and look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the months and years ahead. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. To learn more about China's technology innovation, check out our new report authored by Scott Kennedy on the Fat Tech Dragon and our companion website, which shares analysis of specific sectors, case studies, and more interviews like this one. It also includes assessments of what competitors like the United States, Europe, Japan, and South Korea could do in response to China's tech innovation focus. Links for the report and the site will be in the show notes. As China's innovation drive continues, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. Special thanks to Arthur Krober for sharing his perspective and insights with us. The audio for this podcast was edited by Liz Mays. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look, CSIS.org and KajadAsia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for a groundbreaking maritime analysis in Asia, now in five languages, and check out our latest Reconnecting Asia feature. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on the One Belt, One Road initiative. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening.